On the outskirts of Bedford sits an unassuming building. Drive past and you'll barely notice it. Go to any other business park across the country and you'll probably see the same thing. Grey roof, red brick, a full car park. But behind the walls of this building, there are hundreds of women awaiting news on their future. Will they be able to stay in the UK or will they have to leave? Yarlswood Immigration Centre is a place of anxiety, stress and understandable frustration. For the women inside are waiting for decisions on their immigration status with not much to fill the time. But that was before volunteer Emma Douglas stepped in with an idea. She set up a gardening scheme called Time to Grow, with time being spelt like the herb. It aims to help some of the detainees connect with nature, improve their health and well-being, and keep their minds off their impending decision day. Welcome to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine, the RHS's monthly publication for members. In this podcast, I want to take you to meet the people behind the stories on our pages. And in today's episode, we're looking at our March 2020 issue. We begin with journalist Jane Perone. She visited Yarlswood for the magazine to interview Emma Douglas, who set up the Time to Grow initiative and meet some of the women at the Immigration Centre. I spoke to Jane about that trip and how gardening can help create a sense of community, no matter what the situation. When I went the end of last year, there was about 140 women there. And it's a real mix of people. Basically, they're women who are awaiting a decision from the government about what's going to happen in their future. Some of them, not a massive amount, but some of them have served prison sentences and might be deported back to their home country. There's a wide range of backgrounds coming in, but they're all in that same limbo situation of not knowing what's going to happen and their immigration status is uncertain. So it's a difficult time for those women and they're facing quite a lot of challenges, anxiety, but also boredom. So before we get into the detail about what you've written about, can you just say, what does it feel? Soulless? Does there feel like there is a bit of a community there? What was the feeling? I presume it was your first time you went, you've been to It was, yeah. I mean, it was really interesting... I've been to a prison before and it felt very different from a prison in that, yes, you have to go through a very strict security process to get in and you can't take anything inside with you. So they're obviously very careful about that. But once you're inside, you know, there's women sitting and chatting and talking, groups of women gathering in different places. There's a a salon where they can go and do their hair and things like that. There's a kitchen where at certain times they're allowed to go and prepare their own meals There is obviously a lot of effort made to make the place a habitable place while they're awaiting this big momentous decision in their lives. But obviously they can't leave. It's not where they want to be. They're separated from their families. Mm. There is obviously a level of stress in it. And as I walked out the door at the end of the day, I did think, gosh, how must it feel to think you can't walk out at the end of the day? The other thing that's a major issue is that they're from all different nationalities. Mm. So there is a big language barrier. When I was talking to a couple of the women who I talk about in the piece who are Brazilian, one of them spoke pretty good English. One of them only spoke broken English. So her friends who were sitting colouring, who had better English, um, who were translating for me, it's amazing how you make it work when you need to. As I quote Emma, the organiser of the scheme in the piece, saying, you know, you use sign language because she has to check whether women who want to sign up for the project, whether they have back pain and knee pain. So she's she's oh, miming yeah, things yeah. just to make it work. But she finds that she can communicate and there's always ways around it. You find somebody else in the group who has a mutual language mm. and they can translate or you mime. So the message gets across. 
So we're talking really about the garden here as well, aren't we? About the role of gardens and gardening in a place like this. You mentioned Emma, and that's Emma Douglas, who is the volunteer, isn't it? Who, who, yes. She works with the detainees. What has she done and what's her role in the garden? Well, she started off as a befriender working, volunteering for the charity. So she had an experience of already going into Yarlswood and seeing what was going on there. And she saw this space, this courtyard space in the centre of an area of buildings, and it was grass and shrubs, very municipal as you might imagine, not a lot been done with it and as somebody who had a background in gardening she immediately just thought how wonderful it would be to turn Mm. this into something productive that women could come and spend time out here grow some things, have an experience, perhaps gain some skills, perhaps hark back to their home life and that way that their time there would be enhanced in some way and so she then started on a very long process to getting the scheme up and running because as you can imagine it's not easy no, I'm sure. to, to even bringing in materials everything she brings in she has to itemize and run it past Serco who manage Wood. she has to check all the plants off on the poisonous plants list because yeah. you can't bring anything in that could be potentially harmful even down to things like Anything that could be used for self-harm, like a piece of string. She generally doesn't use string. She uses plastic ties because anything that could be taken and used for self-harm is to be avoided. All the tools are locked away. and, and, and Like secateurs and things. And yeah. Basic so gardening tools. She can't have many sharp tools. No. And then just bringing in soil through lots of locked doors is yeah. just a really hard exercise. Plus, the site itself, it's an old RAF base and the site was a workshop. So there's a very thin layer of soil above rubble. So that's another challenge. Mm. So there were lots of raised beds that they built to just make a better growing space. And then, you know, just the challenges that every garden faces of gardening in a space where you've got buildings around and rain Mm. shadows and winds whistling. whistling, So lots of challenges. And I'm really impressed that she's actually managed to create such a lovely garden and get the scheme up and running because it's uh, full of challenges. We've got some beautiful photos from Sarah Cuttle. And really, when you look through that, there's two things that strike me. One, the hands-on nature of it, people actually gardening, obviously, but also the diversity of the plant material they're growing. So was it just edibles or were there ornamentals as well? No, they've planted some trees. They're trying to create a little memorial garden where people can remember lost loved ones. So they've got herbaceous perennials they've got very shady area where they've got some ferns and some very shade tolerant plants so they're trying to do a mix of everything really it's quite a big space to fill and so there are things that are going to be planted and then left to get on with it like the shade area for example the main as we all know the main work is in the fruit and veg Mm. side of things but um yeah the scheme runs sort of spring to autumn So there's a chance to kind of go through the whole growing season or for Emma to go through the whole growing season and produce as much produce as she can from that. And also they raise herbs and bedding plants, which are sold in the visitor centre as well. So they're trying to sort of do lots of different types of gardening, also to appeal to different people, because not everybody wants to prick out seedlings. Not everyone wants to do every type of gardening. So that's another way of just appealing to the different interests of, of the women. Obviously, the RHS and lots of people in the gardening world are really trying to get this concept of gardening as for friendship or for loneliness or for mental health and well-being. I suppose for you, this was just sort of another example, a living proof of why we need to try and get as many people gardening as possible. Exactly. And I just loved the tenacity shown by Emma Douglas in getting this scheme to work. And also, it was great that Serco actually put their faith Mm. in her and agreed to allow this to happen because 
there are obviously they've got to take very good care of the people that are, are staying in Yarlswood and there are great concerns for their welfare. They're in a very stressful situation. So they're trying to make do things that can hopefully improve their time there while they're awaiting their futures. I think it's wonderful to see. It was very, very heartwarming to see how well this scheme was working. But the other thing that was lovely, which ends the piece, is the fact that Emma is finds going there and doing that a relaxation for her. So, I mean, I never expected her to say that, but she says, this is my getaway time to have time away from my work and my family to do gardening. And so I get something out of it as well, which I thought was lovely too. Thank you to Jane for speaking to me. Thinking about it and reading the article again, you really do get a sense of the plight these women are in but also that small interventions like growing some crops or growing some plants can really make a difference and a tangible difference to people's days. For me, it shows the unifying power of gardening. And no matter what your background, nationality or ability, the gardening and growing can bring people together. So from Yarlswood, I want to share some of the other stories that really stood out for me in this month's edition of The Garden. And one of them is all about growing fruit and veg. We have been running a taste series, an occasional taste series, which has been authored by Mark Diacono, all about growing fruit and vegetables. And in the articles, he looks at a certain crop and describes the taste, describes how you can get the most of it from cooking and obviously from growing them well. And this month he looks at tomatoes, which one may think has been done to death. But actually, when you're just looking at tomatoes for the very best flavours, then this is the whole point of the article. So from cherries to tumblers or beefsteaks to ox hearts, there really is a tomato for everyone and for everyone's palate. And the thing that I also love about this article is that there's one of our photographic plates where we put the different tomatoes together and compare and contrast them. And Mark, as ever, does a beautiful job of bringing out the stories there. One of the fun little articles we've done is a practical piece. For those of you who've been receiving the Garden magazine for about a year or so, you'll know that we sent it out in a paper wrap. We ditched the plastic to save about 5 million plastic wrappers, and we use a paper wrap instead. And actually this month we show how you can turn that paper wrap into a little container to grow your seeds or your plants in. So there's some nice step-by-step photography, which um, should mean that you don't need to even put your paper wrap in the recycling. For those people who've been around a bit, John Ravenscroft is a name that garners a lot of respect. He's an ex-nurseryman and a great plantsman. And this month, we've asked him to dispel some myths, not on something too rarefied, but on magnolias. And people might think magnolias are pretty too a penny, or we know what they look like. But there are some myths, and they need dispelling, such as, is there a range of size to fit different gardens, or the fact that you can actually prune magnolias, and even that they are tougher than you might think when you're growing them. So John gives us five great top tips about why we should all be growing a magnolia in our garden. And it would be remiss of me, as it's the March issue, not to talk all about the imagery. We want to get away from the gales and the floods and the awful time some people are having and actually get excited about the season ahead. The images this month are looking really, really good. It includes Carehays Castle in Cornwall, one of our partner gardens, but it just celebrates the season so well. We've got an article all about our research in plants for bugs, looking at ground-dwelling invertebrates. It might not sound the most pictorially exciting, but it certainly is, and it explains to us why biodiversity and wildlife needs our gardens. And also there's this most spectacular feature of a tulip garden, of course, near Amsterdam called Hortus Bulborum. And wow, the images absolutely pack a punch and they bring that pick-and-mix vibrancy of tulip colour to the pages of this issue. 
One article in particular I'd like to mention is written by my friend and colleague Matthew Pottage, the curator of RHS Garden Wisley. Often when we think of trees as having spectacular leaf colour, it's in the autumn, but some trees give an amazing display in spring too. And this is one of those articles that really makes me appreciative and the love of the job that I have, because in the garden magazine you can look at some unusual angles in horticulture or in plants and flowers. And this is one of those examples where we're looking at that unfurling, probably two, three week window of when trees are coming out with their leaves and actually there's a hit of colour. It's so easy for us to think of flowers giving us the colour, but actually it's the leaves too. Leaves are our backdrop, they're a visual consistency in a garden, in a landscape, in a park. And so we really should think about what the leaves do and what they bring to the spring or autumn garden. So Matthew gives us his advice and highlights some of the best trees for brilliant spring colour. Trees with these characteristics are a real sign of spring. They're a real sign that summer is on its way and we're surrounded by the garden waking up. So I thought a perfect place for us to come and stand to discuss this exciting topic is by the Tuna Sinensis Flamingo, which is on the top of Battleston Hill. And I guess it's probably the first tree that really caught my attention on this topic when I came to Wisley. In early springtime, I saw this cloud of pink on the top of the hill and I just thought it was a flowering cherry. There's a lot of cherries around that are doing that that time of year. And then getting closer to it, I was like, hang on, this isn't in flower. It's a mass of pink, but it's all foliage. And it's just the emerging juvenile leaves that are this absolutely bright flamingo pink colour. And it really demands attention. And I'm sure a lot of people do think it's blossomed from a distance. And I started to look closer at these cultivar trees, which do have the really amazing, brightly coloured spring foliage. You're craving colour in the spring. It's really nice to see blossom. It's quite a relief winter's over. And for my mind, and I have a bit of a more is more kind of mentality, great, why wouldn't you want that colour in the landscape? And most of them kind of calm down as summer goes on as in they emerge they're very colorful and the color kind of either fades or ages to green so it is a bit of a you know two three week hit but it's such a great thing to have Some of the plants that we mentioned in the article, the Quercus rubra aurea, which is the golden uh, American red oak, is like this globe of sunshine. The tree on the edge of Oakwood on seven acres at Wisley literally lights up. It's kind of at March, April time when it's coming into leaf. And they are really, really vibrant acid yellow. The tuna, which I mentioned, is bright pink. We've got a Cicidophyllum called Red Fox, and that's a lot more tasteful. So if you're a bit scared of bright colours, uh, this is kind of more of a burgundy colour. But it's very rich, and uh, it looks beautiful with other magnolias and things around it. That's again growing in Oakwood. And then there is a horse chestnut, which is a really surprising thing, called Hampton Court Gold. It was found at Hampton Court in the Privy Garden there, growing as a sport, and that leaves up almost white actually it's like a really pale yellow almost white and when that is doing its thing in early spring i love to take groups in there people never see stuff like this you know they're not 
doesn't seem to be a, a widely grown group of trees. And against a blue sky, when you see something like the tuna or the oak or the esculus, you know, they are really, really memorable, arguably more so than just a flowering tree. So they're really something to look out for. Probably the most well-known of this group, actually, is probably one of the aces that's mentioned in the article. It's a bit of a glorified sycamore, but don't hold that against it. It's Acer pseudoplatinus brilliantissimum, and that leaves up a really lovely orangey, ambery colour, and then that ages, goes through like a colour wave, and eventually goes to a green in, in midsummer. That's probably the most popular one. There's also one called Walder Cei, which is a bit of a mouthful cultivar name, which is white when it first emerges. I think, if anything, these things don't maybe have quite as much vigour as the straight species do. Obviously, they're not producing as much chlorophyll because they are these quite wacky colours initially. And if there is a drawback with anything, the golden oak, the Quercus rubra aurea, if we have quite intense hot sunshine in spring, it can scorch the leaves. It grows through it and it doesn't really cause any problems, but there's no decrease in hardiness because of it. And, you know, they're just really surprising and fun to have. I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that if somebody plants in an urban front garden, it would just bring so much surprise and delight to everyone around. Just something quite unexpected. If I did have space for any of them, I'd probably have that Davidia or this Sicidophyllum red fox, actually. A note on that Sicidophyllum red fox is it's quite narrow, almost like a flame shape. It doesn't get quite as enormous as the species. So if you have a, you know, more of a medium-sized garden, it's certainly one to consider. So a lot of these have probably ended up at Wisley just because years and years of keen plants people here seeking out the unusual, seeking out something a bit different. And that is why Wisley has such an eclectic selection of, of trees and, and, and most garden plants. It's why it's such a unique and fun place to look after. And, uh, and we're very lucky that people had the foresight to be seeking these things out. And if you're looking to see some of these, all the things photographed in the article are at Wisley. They're generally performing in around April into early May, so if you can visit us around that time, uh, you'll be able to get around the, the site and see these. Some of them will stand out like an absolute beacon, the tuners especially on Battlestone Hill. You heard the voice of the inimitable Matthew Pottage. As mentioned, you can read his full article on trees for spring leaf colour in March's edition of The Garden. Now, as we get excited for spring, there's one plant that will feature in many gardens all across the country. Begonias. Perhaps it's because they're easy to grow and they can often be found in maybe rather neglected or darker corners of a garden. Begonias can sometimes be a bit looked down upon by gardeners. But I, like my colleagues here at the garden, think they have a lot to offer. So we're not afraid to stand behind plants we love. So it's time to hear an impassioned defence of the begonia from writer Melissa Mabbott and deputy editor Phil Clayton. So begonias are herbaceous perennial plants, very low growing, very good for ground cover. They're often commonly known as elephant's ears or sometimes pig squeak, yeah. which is because the leaves are quite leathery. So if you run your thumb over the leaf, it will make a squeaky noise. So they are really kind of leathery, quite meaty, but low plants. Um, not to be confused with begonias, which are tender bedding plants, really, which are completely different, let's be honest. Totally so, different. It's just totally a name different. that's similar, yeah. although... Some begonias you grow for leaves as well. So there's a sort of 
vague superficial yeah. similarity. But I it's don't. Very it'd vague. be very hard to confuse the two, oh, really, wouldn't so. it? Yeah. So, so uh, I distinguish between evergreen begonias. You see, I'm at it now. Begonias, <laughs> begonias uh, and deciduous ones. Deciduous ones are few and far between, but I have a particular affection for them. There are two which I grow. Ciliata is the most well-known one. Mm. It has huge leaves. Uh, they can be almost a foot Plate across. Size. Uh, mm. And they're furry. Uh, covered in this soft hair. They're lovely it's to all around the edge, the first no, one. All, all, all over, all right. over. Okay. There's even mm. a cultivar called Wilton, which obviously refers to it being a bit like a carpet. Mm. Uh, another one called Dumbo. Um, oh, yes, I've seen that one. Yeah. These great yeah. Mm. I love that. They flower very, very early. Short heads of pink flowers. Often that's frosted if you get a late frost. Mm. And they come up, obviously, without the leaves. Then the leaves develop a bit later on. Mm. They're lovely, very silvery when they come out. But they are the hardy, hairs. that one. They are hardy. hardy yeah, not as hardy mm-hmm. as the evergreen ones, actually, mm-hmm. curiously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're definitely hardy. And they can get in a moist, fertile place. They can get really quite impressive size, yes. uh, the clumps. There's another one which looks like ciliata that's been shaved. Mm-hmm. It's called pecumbus. Ooh. And it, again, has, if not slightly bigger leaves, I mean, they really are... Big. I've seen them a foot and a half across these pecumbers, but it's very similar in every other way. It's just that the, the leaf is smooth, but again, it dies back to this sort of clump of rhizomes. What is quite useful about begonias, I nearly said begonias then as well, is that the range of conditions they can plant in. So you were talking about if yeah. they shade, they get big. Yeah. Or, but they are really useful in that respect because they will tolerate some dryness, but also shade and a bit of moisture as well. As I, I, you know, really drought-like conditions they won't do, or a bog they probably won't do well in. But anything in between, they're really happy in, aren't they? They are. They mm. seem to do best, though, in a decent amount of sunlight mm. and an open position. And certainly the ones that colour up for winter definitely like a more exposed spot mm. and actually slightly better on slightly poor soil because that seems to bring out the colours better. I think that goes for quite a lot of plants, isn't it? The more yeah. sun they have, the better the right. colour will be. Yeah. The great thing about them as well is that they're really good for ground cover, but they won't take over. A lot of ground cover plants will are fast growing and will take over, but these will cover ground well at a good rate. I would never describe one as being invasive. Never. No, they're not, no. certainly not. Mm, they're no. certainly not. They form these sort of rafts of growth, mm. which... You it's quite have easy to, to pick it off it's if quite it gets easy to big, pick it off it? if it gets too yeah. big absolutely right there's drawbacks they seem to be snail hotels mm-hmm. quite often <laughs> they tend to hold on to their old leaves mm-hmm. and so they do need grooming i'd say mm-hmm. uh, particularly sort of after the winter when some of the leaves are really quite tattered mm. and ugly. Um, that's a good time to go through. I quite often, I've got a clump of one called Beginia strachii. I don't particularly like it. It just came from my grandparents' garden and I've always kept it and it's mm. bulletproof, basically. Yeah. It, it survives anything. But that is a clump which I just cut it back. I mean, the rhizomes, I just cut through just, them yeah, yeah, and chuck them away and it sprouts out from those and, and I get... Quite nice displays of yeah. pink, pink flowers in the spring as well. What I quite like about it is even if you can do that, you can just chop it back. It still looks quite neat. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, I quite like the ones that have slightly more upright, tighter leaves because I think they look better. They stand better over the winter. Absolutely Ones right. with long leaf petioles that flop a bit That's tend exactly to look a bit right. messier. So purpurescence, I would rate very highly. <clears throat> yes, me from too. From that point yeah. of view. Yeah. Much more upright leaves, short petioles yeah. mm-hmm. and extraordinary winter colour. Others I like are Admiral, which isn't one you don't see very often. Uh, What colour is that? It's got pink, tall spikes of pink flowers, but again, Mm. really fiery, uh, Mm. wintry colour. I really like one called um, Schnee Königin. I think that's how you're saying. A lot of beginners have really... Snow Queen. Yeah, Snow Queen. They have a lot of very German names. Yeah, yeah, they have. Yes, the Snow Queen, that one. But that's got a sort of very 
pale blush pink to oh, white. Nice. Uh, very nice, it. but quite a small flower, but, yeah. but very kind of delicate looking. Okay. There's one called Eroica. Yes, which I grow that one. Eroica. Er- er- Eroica. <laughs> yeah. Eroica. Yeah, yeah. Eroica. Very <laughs> I've nice. only ever seen it written down. Never heard, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah, that's lovely. That's got a sort of deep purpley cerise pink. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, the leaves yeah. are good as well. Strong, mm. oh, yes, strong purple flat, purpley yeah. cerise flowers. Yeah. And then these green leaves with a, with a good red underside to them. Yeah, and I, what I like about that one and many of them is that, that when it's not just the flower colour, it's the stem colour. Yeah. They've got that really kind of fleshy, lovely red colour. They almost look like rhubarb stems and that really adds something to it, especially above dark leaves or really green leaves. It's just really striking. One that I'd like to recommend for flowers is called Arbenglut. And I think that is one that tends to lose its leaves a little bit okay. um, in the winter. But the flowers are almost double looking. I'm not sure if they are technically double, but they've got almost a slight frilly look to them. Mm. They're pink. Um, and I'll, again, one, yeah, showy. Mm. And it's on a red stem again. So yeah. I just think that it's a really striking one. I like that one a lot. And it's quite tall, I think. Nice. What beginners are really useful for planting on corners, whether we can give oh, them people. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because they, the front yeah. Whatever. And mm. I've seen them work really well if you've got a big stone or a big boulder in a place, if you plant them around a boulder. Mapping around yes, the boulder. Yes, they look nice. fantastic. It's really fascinating to hear the pros and cons of begonias there. It is an underrated plant, and I know that I try not to underrate it because I walk past it every day when I get to the car. As I come out of my front door, there's a whole stand of begonias, and actually they're doing their thing now where they're flowering beautifully, and actually they're pretty useful for me. So um, I'm a proponent of the begonia too. I'd love to hear how you have used begonias in your garden, so please do tell us via Twitter. Use the handle at the underscore RHS and use the hashtag RHS podcast. And for more information on all of the topics and plants we've discussed in this episode, you can, of course, visit our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Join us next month as we look at April's edition of the magazine. There's one special feature that we're working on as we speak, which is all about health and well-being in your gardens. It accompanies a book the RHS is publishing, and so I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into that article and talking more about it. But for now, from me, Chris Young, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>